Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikaway, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine that's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I'm your host, uh, Abayomi Azikaway. Today is Saturday, August 19th, uh, 2023, and uh, we're broadcasting live uh, from our studios in uh, downtown Detroit. We would like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, once again to yet another edition of uh, the Pan-African Journal. Later on in our program, we'll be bringing you our regular Pan-African Newswire report. Uh, We'll have dispatches on the developments in Niger, where the Economic Community of West African States has sent a delegation uh, to Niame uh, to hold discussions uh, with the CNSP government as well as the ousted uh, President Mohamed Bazoum. We'll have details on that later on in our program. Fighting in Sudan has intensified, particularly in the South Darfur region, uh, where clashes between the Sudanese armed forces and the rapid support forces are continuing. Somalia uh, has been accepted into the East African community. Uh, We'll have uh, details on that story. And in Mali, uh, there's been discussions between the United Nations Envoy for Peacekeeping and uh, the Malian transitional leadership over the withdrawal of U.N. peacekeeping forces uh, from that West African state. In the second hour, we listen to a briefing on the upcoming Brazil, Russia, India, China Summit, South Africa Plus Summit. Uh, It will be held in the Republic of South Africa uh, this coming week, and uh, this is a briefing done uh, by uh, the African National Congress government in South Africa. Finally, we continue our month-long focus on Black August, commemorating the struggle against enslavement, uh, colonialism, neocolonialism, and imperialism. And uh, in this episode, we're going to do an examination of the legacy of African freedom fighter Nat Turner, who led a rebellion in Southampton County, Virginia, during 1831. Uh, This uh, segment uh, features a descendant uh, of Nat Turner who will talk about the impact of his ancestor on uh, the overall struggle for freedom. These and other features will be brought to you during the course of our program. Stay tuned. Uh, we'll take our musical interlude uh, with the music of Niger uh, from uh, the Les Fils de Ilegadad, all women's uh, band uh, from the West African state of Niger. Let's listen in. Thank you. 
Thank you.
Welcome back. And uh, you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Saturday, uh, August the 19th, 2023. And we're broadcasting uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit. And that was the music of Niger in West Africa uh, from the all-women's band, Les Fils de Iligadad. And uh, that uh, was taken uh, from an album uh, by the same name. And just to give you some background information on the band, Les Fils de Iligadad are a Tuareg uh, band founded by Fatou Sede Gali in Iligadad, a village uh, in the Sahara Desert in Niger. Gali, it is claimed, is the first uh, Tuareg woman to play guitar professionally. Gali taught herself to play on her brother's guitar while women did perform music among her people. They didn't play guitar. Rather, they played a style of music called tende, centered on a drum made with mortar and pestles, a style that influenced Tuareg guitar playing, but isn't generally part of the music played by Tuareg men. Les Fils de Illigat incorporate tende with guitar playing, asserting the power of women and innovative using the roots of traditional Tuareg music. Uh, Gali usually plays with her cousin, Alamanu Akruni. Gali and the Fils have recorded three albums with Christopher Kirkley uh, for his Sahil Sounds label. Recordings were made uh, in the open air and consisted of recordings of Gali in the daytime, and the fields are playing in the village at night. <clears throat> Following the release of the first album, uh, the fields did a short European tour, and Gali used her earnings to buy more cattle. Mariama Salah Aswan uh, left the group to begin a family. She was replaced by the second Tuareg woman guitarist, uh, Fatimata Ahmad Lea. The group toured the United States in the fall of 2019, playing in New York and in Detroit as a four-piece band consisting of Gali, Akinwini, uh, Ahmed Dilhir, and Gali's brother, Abdullahi Madasani, on rhythm and guitar. The album at uh, Pioneer Works was recorded at the Pioneer Works Art Center in the Red Hook, Brooklyn, in October of 2019 during the tour. The band uh, music uh, was described by Amande Petrushis as heavily meditative and tender and reminiscent of players like R.L. Burnside and Otha Turner, who were directly informed by African music, seated in the American South by enslaved Africans. Writing for the New York Times, David Renard stated that the group's sound, quote, takes the Tuareg guitar music uh, sometimes referred to as desert blues, brought to the West by breakthrough artists uh, from the region like Mdu Mokhtar, Bombino, and Pira Rewen, and fuses it with Tende. The result is repetitive and hypnotic and conveys something spiritual and solemn, but also transmits a sense of joy and playfulness that goes back to the music's roots in uh, the village life. And uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of the Pan-African Journal. And, uh, of course, uh, right now, uh, we want to deal with some of the other uh, major issues taking place uh, as it relates to the Pan-African Newswire and its reports. A delegation from West Africa's regional bloc, ECOWAS, uh, met Niger's ousted president, Mohamed Bazoum, and held talks with the 
new leaders, General Abdurrahmani Gianni. A plane carrying the delegation landed in the capital of Niame at about 1 p.m. on uh, Saturday earlier today, a day after the bloc's military chief said they were ready to intervene militarily to reinstate Bazoum. Niger's governing military council confirmed the arrival of the ECOWAS representatives headed by former Nigerian leader Abdusalami Abubakar. The group was allowed to meet Bazoum, the first time foreign officials have seen the ousted leader in weeks. We met Bazoum. Uh, we heard from him what was done to him. He told us about the problems he's facing. We'll take it to the leaders who sent us here, uh, said Abu Bakr. Without doubt, the meeting has opened discussions to lead to a way to resolve the, this crisis. A previous ECOWAS delegation led by Abu Bakr earlier this month tried and failed to meet with Bazoum and the uh, leader of the new CNSP government. The West African representatives also met with Chiana uh, earlier today, though there was no information as to what was discussed. Uh, there was no immediate comment from uh, the new leaders in Niger. Chiani was scheduled to address the nation in a televised address this evening. ECOWAS uh, delegates came to Niamey and joined efforts by the United Nations Special Representatives for West Africa and the Sahel, Leonardo Santos Simayo, who arrived on Friday in trying to facilitate a resolution to the continuing crisis. Yesterday, UN spokesman Stephanie Dujaric and Simayo would meet the military rulers and other parties to try and facilitate a swift and peaceful resolution to Niger's crisis. Quote, what we want to see is a return to the constitutional order. We want to see the liberation of the president and his family and the restoration of his legitimate authority, unquote, Dujaric said. On August the 10th, ECOWAS ordered the deployment of a, quote, standby force, unquote, to restore constitutional rule in the country. The soldiers who overthrew democratically elected Bazoum in July have quickly entrenched themselves in power. Uh, they have rebuffed uh, most dialogue efforts by the imperialist states and uh, their functionaries in West Africa and kept Bazoum, his wife and son, under house arrest in the capital of Niamey. Yesterday, uh, the ECOWAS uh, Commissioner for Peace and Security, Abdel Fatah Musa, said 11 of his 15 member states agreed to commit troops to a military deployment, saying they were, quote, ready to go whenever the order was given. The D-Day is also decided, unquote, he added. The 11 members do not include Niger itself and the bloc's three other uh, countries under military rule following a similar uh, coup d'etat, and that would be Guinea, Mali, and Burkina Faso. The latter two have warned they would consider any intervention in Niger as an act of war. Yesterday, Niger State Television said Mali and Burkina Faso dispatched warplanes in a show of solidarity. Friday's announcement is the latest in a series of empty threats by ECOWAS to forcefully restore uh, Bazoum, who is a close ally of the West. Immediately after the removal of Bazoum, uh, the ECOWAS grouping gave the military government seven days to release and restore Bazoum, a deadline that came and went with no action. <clears throat> the new government leaders won't be holding their breath this time over the renewed threats of military action, said Of. Lezing, head of the Sahel program at the Conrad Adunur Foundation, a think tank. Mutinous soldiers are cementing their rule and appointing loyal commanders to key units 
while ECOWAS has no experience with military action in hostile territory and would have no local support if it tried to intervene, he said. Niger is a very fragile country that can easily turn in case of a military intervention into what is described by the West as a failed state, similar to what is happening in Sudan, said Lesin. ECOWAS used force to restore order in member countries in 2017 in the Gambia when longtime President Yahya Jame uh, agreed uh, to leave the country and step down from office. But even in that case, the move had involved diplomatic efforts led by then-presidents of Mauritania and Guinea, while Jamey appeared to be acting on his own after the Gambian army pledged allegiance to the winner of the elections, Arma Bero. On the streets of the capital on Saturday, many residents said they are preparing to fight back against ECOWAS and its military intervention. Thousands of people in Niamey lined up outside the main stadium to register as volunteers or fighters and to help with other needs in case the military government requires support. Some parents brought their children to sign up. Others said they'd been waiting since 3 a.m. while groups of youth boisterously chatted in favor of the new leadership and against ECOWAS and the country's former colonial ruler, that is, France. Quote, I am here for the recruitment to become a good soldier. We are all here for that, unquote, said Ishmael Hassan, a resident waiting in line to register. He said, quote, if God wills, we will all go, unquote. The humanitarian situation in the country is also on the agenda uh, before uh, the change of power. Nearly three million people were facing severe food insecurity, and hundreds of thousands were internally displaced, <clears throat> according to the group CARE, which is an international aid group. Economic and travel sanctions imposed by ECOWAS after the coup coupled with the deteriorating security, will have dire consequences for the population, according to CARE. Previously, Western countries saw Niger as one of the last allies uh, in the region. Uh, They could partner with them uh, to ostensibly beat back growing linked al-Qaeda and ISIL armed groups and poured millions of dollars of military aid and assistance into the shoring up of the Niger military, which is now turned against France and the United States. Since the coup, Fighters have been taking advantage of the freedom of movement caused by suspended military operations by the French and the Americans, and a distracted Nigerian army focusing efforts on the capital. Last week, at least 17 soldiers were killed and 20 wounded during an ambush. It was the first major attack against Niger's army in six months. A day later, at least 50 civilians were killed in the Pil Labiri region by suspected ISIL fighters. The recent attacks should motivate all parties to work for a speedy and inclusive transition as as soon as possible so they can get back to the crucial business of protecting civilians from the devastating consequences of war. And that was according to uh, Corinne Dufka, a political analyst who specializes in the Sahel region. In due time, Nigerians and their partners should look long and hard at why and how democracy in Niger faltered. Nonetheless, um, what is actually going on is a popular rebellion against French neocolonialism is a challenge to U.S. hegemony in West Africa through the United States Africa Command. And all of these threats uh, of military intervention by uh, the, quote, civilian, unquote, leadership in ECOWAS are at the aegis of the United States, France, and other NATO countries.
And uh, between France and the United States, according to uh, recent reports, the coup in Niger is injecting fresh tension into the France-U.S. alliance in West Africa. The coup countries are at odds over how to respond to the ouster of the West African country's president last month. France is refusing to diplomatically engage with the new leadership and strongly supports a regional body that has threatened military intervention. The United States has dispatched an envoy to meet with the new leadership and held back from officially declaring to take over a coup, insisting there is still a negotiated way to restore what they call democracy. French officials also support a peaceful resolution, but they are bristling at the United States approach, saying engaging with the new leadership empowers them. Now, perhaps in order to avoid bloodshed, the U.S. was quickly keen to talk to the pushers. Maybe the better reaction should have been to put some conditions or guarantees before opening those channels, unquote. And that was according to a French official familiar with the situation in Niger. The official, like others who spoke for this story, was granted anonymity to discuss a sensitive diplomatic matter. The situation suggests a shifting balance of power in the region and underscores the differences between Paris and Washington's interests in the country. The United States, which uses Niger as a base for, quote, counterterrorism operations, unquote, may also believe it has more leverage than France, not least due to Paris's baggage as a former colonizer. Some former U.S. officials argue that France's unhappiness with the United States approach is due in part to its agitation at losing one of its last strategic footholds in the West African Sahel, where other uh, military seizures of power have already forced it to withdraw troops elsewhere. France has refused a request by the new leadership in Niger uh, that it withdraw troops from the country. The stakes for France in Niger are much higher than for Washington a psychological and strategic defeat for France. And that's according to Cameron Hudson, a former White House National Security Council official focused on the African continent. In West Africa, France is accustomed to seeing other world powers follow its lead, or at least its guidance. That's not happening in this case. Acting Deputy U.S. Secretary of State Victoria Nuland, on a lightning visit to Niger, met with uh, representatives of the new government on August 7th and urged them to reverse their actions. But she was denied a meeting with the deposed president, Mohamed Bazoum, and she acknowledged afterwards that the new leadership appeared unwilling to reverse its course. French officials pointed to that as an example of being too quick to engage. While France and the United States remain closely aligned on a range of topics, including uh, the Russian special military operation in Ukraine, Several points of tension have emerged between the oldest allies in recent years. They include differences over a security partnership among Australia, the U.S., and the United Kingdom, relations with China, and America's Inflation Reduction Act, which Europeans fear will siphon investment away from uh, the European continent. And you can read more uh, on uh, the situation in Niger uh, by merely logging on to the Pan-African Newswire. In other news, the Niala emergency room initiative in the Republic of Sudan has issued a fervent plea for humanitarian intervention to rescue the imperiled inhabitants of the state. Additionally, the volunteer collective has employed the conflicting factions to promptly halt the bombardment and slaughter of civilians in Nyala. The capital of South Darfur has become a theater of violent confrontations and reciprocal shellings 
between the Sudanese Armed Forces and the Rapid Support Forces, resulting in numerous casualties among the civilian populace. The intensity of the clashes has compelled residents in multiple neighborhoods to flee the relentless barrage of explosives. In a statement that released uh, yesterday, the Nyala Emergency Room Initiative presented a somber portrayal of the humanitarian crisis in Nyala, outlining the precipitous deterioration of essential services. They underscored that the capital is grappling with, quote, catastrophic humanitarian conditions that have far surpassed any anticipations, unquote, as the deadly conflict between the RSF and the armed forces rages on. And are you listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal? In other news, the East African Community Secretary General Peter Matuki says Somalia has made a critical step towards becoming the eighth member of the bloc. Addressing a press conference in Arusha, Tanzania on Wednesday, the East African Community boss said Mogadishu had made it to the negotiation stage and expressed confidence that Somalia would be accepted into the bloc later this year. A series of meetings will be held in Nairobi, and the Somalia ascension is one of, on the top of the agenda. Quote, the East African community conducted a verification mission to assess the readiness of Somalia to join the bloc, and the report was deliberated on and shared with all partner states. Negotiations for admitting it will begin on the 22nd of this month of the 5th, of September, Dr. Matuki said, Somalia applied to join the community back in 2012, and a verification mission was launched by the EAC on January the 25th of 2023. And uh, finally, in the West African state of Mali, the country has welcomed Jean-Pierre Lacroix, the United Nations Undersecretary General for Peace Operations, for a two-day working visit. The purpose of this visit was to meet with national authorities in preparation for the planned withdrawal of the United Nations mission by December 31st. The first part of his visit took him to the city of Mati, where he was accompanied by the head of the Minusma, El Gassim Wane. In Mati, they were received by the city's governor, Colonel Major Abbas Dembele. Quote, we discussed the importance of preserving the gains from Minusma presence as much as possible and naturally the significance of ensuring all conditions are met for Manusma's withdrawal to take place under the best possible circumstances, unquote, says Lacroix. The United Nations Security Council in July unanimously voted to end its decades-long peacekeeping mission in Mali after a request from its military government to withdraw the troops. The UN Multidimensional Integrated Stabilization Michigan, Manusma, was established by the Security Council 10 years ago to deal with the uprising of Islamic insurgents groups linked to al-Qaeda in northern Mali. With that, uh, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of uh, the Pan-African Journal. And in concluding uh, this segment of our program, we want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998, and since then it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in hundreds of newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African 
and Global Affairs. And if you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And uh, if you'd like to have access to today's Pan-African Journal, worldwide uh, radio broadcast uh, for Saturday, uh, August the 19th, uh, 2023, all you need to do is go uh, to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network, and uh, that is at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And uh, right now, uh, we're going to uh, take a musical break. We'll be back with more of our program for this week. This is a house that Jack built, y'all. Remember this house. This was the land that he worked by hand. It was the dream of an upright man. There was a room that was filled with love. It was a love that I was proud of. This is the life, the life that he planned. On the love, the same old love. In the house of Jack the house of Jack Remember this house. transition uh, in 2018 uh, here in the city of Detroit where we're broadcasting from. That track was entitled The House uh, That Jack Built. And uh, right now we want to move into a briefing uh, from the African National Congress of South Africa on the upcoming uh, BRICS Plus Summit that will take place uh, in the Republic of South Africa. Uh, And of course, uh, Brazil, uh, Russia, India, China, South Africa, 
and other countries uh, which are applying uh, to join uh, the body, uh, of course, is a major uh, focus uh, for the international community. Let's listen to this briefing, uh, which features uh, the Secretary General uh, of the ANC. Uh, let's listen in. And South Africa significantly tells a story that says people who embrace different systems and cultures can in fact cooperate and exchange social, political, and economic lessons for the greater good of all humanity. This is the distinct feature of our relationship as the African National Congress and the Communist Party of China, underpinned by mutual respect whilst assisting each party to reach its development goals. This is the profound lesson that we must carry for the next 25 years of China-South Africa relations. Of course, like all relationships, this too, has gone without, this too has not gone without challenges. However, the determination by the leadership of both the Communist Party of China and the African National Congress has ensured we sail through those challenges. The geopolitical challenges that continue to redefine our world can learn a lot from the China-South Africa relations. Our understanding on geopolitics is not informed by mere idealism on world peace, but global peace itself is better guaranteed by stability in the balance of power. Our observation is that a multipolar world may as a result serve best the objectives of world peace and global security of all nations. In this regard, allow me to reiterate that we said on the occasion of our recent visit to China as arising from our National Conference Resolution. The ANC has been part of the non-aligned movement. We are also part of the anti-imperialist and anti-colonial forces. The ANC remains firm in its view that all conflicts should be resolved through dialogue and diplomacy. We totally reject gunboat diplomacy. Again, on that occasion, we amplified what President Xi said on the profound meaning of international solidarity. And I quote, we must help others to succeed while seeking our own success and ensure all can enjoy the outcomes of modernization. Humanity lives in a community with a shared future where we rise and fall together. For any country to achieve modernization, it should pursue common development through solidarity and cooperation and follow the principles of joint contribution, shared benefits and win-win outcome. The front runners should sincerely support other countries in their development. Close quote. Our participation together with the Communist Party of China in BRICS seeks to cement the global aspirations for an alternative world where all countries compete on the basis of their natural and human resource endowment, as opposed to unipolar dictatorship. It is a platform that will enable the kind of solidarity envisaged by President Xi and all other leaders of the BRICS community. Certainly, as South Africa, we share in these profound values and, that, and thereby cherish 
our continued membership of BRICS, working together to usher in a new world underpinned by justice and equality. In this regard, we reiterate our message that BRICS is not an enemy to any country or any constellation of countries, but rather an example of how the entire world could relate in solidarity underpinned by progressive social, economic and political principles. BRICS will certainly advance the course of multilateralism as opposed to unilateralism. It is precisely why we welcome the geopolitical shifts from a unipolar world to a multipolar world as this will help foster multilateralism. Dialogue premised on multilateralism will help resolve various conflicts, not only those pertaining Russia and Ukraine, but those also pertaining the South China Seas, Western Sahara, Israel and Palestine, Sudan, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, Niger and many more. Multilateralism will also be an appropriate arbiter on economic and trade matters, as opposed to the unilateral blockade against countries such as Cuba, Zimbabwe, Iran, North Korea, and so on. We take this opportunity to thank President Xi and the Communist Party of China for supporting our initiative at hosting the BRICS Political Parties Plus, which sought in the main to be a springboard to mobilize African political parties into the BRICS progressive fold. The event was a resounding success and uh, that could not have been possible without the support of the Communist Party of China and all other political parties. Today, we take stock of the China-South Africa relations, acknowledging the strides we have made on economic trade between the two countries. As noted by the Department of International Relations and Cooperation, earlier this year, on the occasion of the 25th anniversary of the relations between our two countries, on the 1st of January 2023, this was consolidated into a comprehensive strategic partnership and underpinned by a new 10-year strategic program of cooperation. Over those years, our trade grew exponentially. Trade saw an increase from less than 1 billion uh, around in 1998 to over 544 billion around by 2021. Many on South Africa are very much familiar with the Chinese trading malls around the country, which has opened, among others, to affordable electronics for various household uh, users. These Chinese trading malls employ a significant number of people helping reduce our unemployment figures. Of course, it will be important that as South Africa, we too explore how to build South African trading centers in China to promote South African manufacturers and services. Historically, South Africa has been reliant on mineral resources to boost our economy. Part of areas wherein China could look into is investment in mineral exploration. As we aim to capture at least 5% of global exploration funds in the immediate term, linked to that as expressed by our President Cyril Ramaphosa recently, 
We no longer want export just um, raw minerals. Instead, we want to have our minerals beneficiated here in South Africa as part of our industrialization drive. That's another area China could look into, that is mineral beneficiation. As I conclude, allow me to thank you once more for inviting us into this important event. We also thank you for having invited us on several occasions over the years to share our political experiences on party-to-party -party basis. The most recent being the June visit, uh, uh, June visit two months ago. As we had for the national general elections next year, we remain committed to organizational renewal which must restore and improve the trust that our populace has had on the African National Congress. We remain committed to being revolutionary democrats for the fundamental national transformation of our society. As the ANC, we remain guided by the objectives of the National Democratic Revolution to create a society underpinned by non-racialism, non-sexism, equality, democracy, and the prosperity for all. We, we chose the path of a developmental state as the political architecture of our national transformation so that the state can decisively intervene in favor of certain progressive developmental ends, such as capacity in the state must see to it that we provide water, electricity, sanitation, roads, houses, health care centers, schools, and various other infrastructure builds. Public-private partnerships have to be forced to, to enable the state to deliver on these undertakings, while simultaneously addressing the long-standing challenges of racial, gender, and class inequality. Over the 25 years of our relations, we have gone a long way towards deepening our democracy, institutionally and regular national as well as local government elections, remains a determinant of our democratic mandate to govern. Hence, next year we are get towards the national general elections that we will mark 30 years of democracy and political freedom from apartheid uh, colonialism. And in this, we can certainly count on the esteemed partnership we have with the Communist Party of China. We also welcome the continued communication between President Ramaphosa and President Xi on both party-to-party -party issues as well as country-to-country -country relations. Working together, we believe we are strong and therefore can assail the geopolitical challenges facing our shared world. BRICS remain an extremely important platform to advance the various development objectives as amplified recently in the declaration of BRICS political parties plus dialogue here in South Africa in Egurule. We look forward to yet again working together for the success of the 15th BRICS summit. And from us as the African National Congress, with all humility, without arrogance, we guarantee that 2024 victory certain, the ANC will emerge victorious. Thank you very much.
much for this opportunity, Your Excellency, the Ambassador of the People's Republic of China, uh, Comrade Fikile Mbalula, the Secretary General of the African National Congress, which is the ruling party of South Africa, Professor Paul Tembe, author and research fellow at the Tabombegi African um, Leadership Institute and the writer, of course, of this book that has been launched here today. Um, representatives from um, all over the country, whether you are from political parties, civil society, diplomatic corps, the media, of course. We also acknowledge your presence here today. Ladies and gentlemen, good morning. Is it good afternoon now? Because I'm not sure what time is it. I'll try to say ni hao. Definitely, as South Africa, we celebrate the President Xi Jinping precisely because of what he has been able to contribute to our country and Africa as a whole. We all know that um, during the time where um, many countries were actually grappling with um, 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 the COVID-19 pandemic, we have seen an erosion of multilateralism happening all over the, 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 the world. However, as the African Union, and as South Africa that was leading at that particular time, we were able to bring African countries together to be able to mutually benefit from whatever it is that we could be able to get to deal with the pandemic itself. And we couldn't have done that better without the help of President Xi Jinping, who at that particular time donated without even wanting anything, without even expecting us to send any delegation to China to give us about 700 million um, 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 uh, dosages that were supposed to help us with ensuring that we do stop the spread of um, um, the pandemic itself, which was COVID-19 at that time. That assisted us a lot to be able to say that as Africans, we can be able to fight the pandemic itself from, from, from spreading and ensuring that we save most of our people. So we definitely have a good story to tell ourselves on the work that President, President Xi Jinping himself has been able to contribute to try and save lives, but equally so to make sure that we strengthen multilateralism in Africa and in the world. One of the reasons that we are celebrating, of course, the 25 years of uh, diplomatic and trade relations between China and South Africa is precisely because we are also celebrating, as the Secretary General has already said, uh, the, the, the growth in the um, bilateral trade that has grown exponentially from 1 billion to almost 500 or more than 500 uh, billion um, um, rands is quite a lot. And that happened precisely because the president once told us that President Xi Jinping actually said to him, as much as we are happy to see the trade being where it is, tilting more to China, we would actually like it to grow, but this time around we want it to grow so that it can be equal. As much as China is quite bigger than South Africa, but the fact that President Xi Jinping mentioned the fact that what can China actually do to be able to assist South Africa to play a meaningful role in making sure that at least the trade balance does become balanced uh, as it is so that we don't have so much deficit. He said he's actually uh, um, embarrassed to actually stand up and say this is the trade balance, but it's tilting more to China. So such kind of leadership makes us really celebrate 
President Xi Jinping precisely because of his direct contribution to South Africa, but most of all to actually ensure that whatever it is that he does, um, does touch our people uh, uh, um, personally. Because once you grow the trade, it means that job creation will be there, but the trade will also be able to ensure that the economy becomes stronger. Therefore, the people of South Africa will definitely be able to benefit. We are saying this precisely because today it is about him. We cannot wait to really see the book and read it further. I haven't been able to get a copy. I hope that after getting the copy, then we will be able to appreciate the uh, leadership of President Xi Jinping much more better. This year, of course, we are celebrating 25 years of diplomatic relations between Republic of South Africa and the People's Republic of uh, China. Over these years, these strong diplomatic ties have led to unlocking economic, social and political opportunities that promote high-quality development between our two countries. Over these two decades and a half, our countries have deepened the wide-ranging bilateral relations which have been elevated to a comprehensive strategic partnership and underpinned by a new 10-year strategic program of cooperation that the Secretary General has just alluded to. This has obviously culminated, as I've already said, in making sure that the trade balance between South Africa and China does grow to 544 billion rand in 2021. And we celebrate this most especially because that, that happened at the time where COVID-19 was actually really, really, really at its uh, um, peak. Therefore, we didn't really expect this to happen, but it happening, it means that there's something special about this uh, relationship between South Africa and China. In the past quarter century, through diplomatic missions and nation-to-nation -nation agreements, there has been a transformational transition from made in China to made in South Africa, and definitely Africa more broadly. Your Excellency, beyond our booming trade relations, our countries have been equally invested in strengthening political power and governance through institutional capacity, sharing the best practices with regard to policy and legislation, development and implementation and ultimately ensuring that the improved livelihood of our people remain the driving force behind our developmental agenda. It is for this reason, of course, that South Africa remains committed to the One China policy and we are definitely going to make sure that we strengthen our relationship by also trying to make sure that we push for more missions to be opened in China that are from South Africa. South Africa will continue consolidating existing relations with China through various platforms such as BRICS, of course, that everybody knows about. In few years' time, I mean, few days' time, we'll be having a summit. And definitely FOCA. That has been actually the strength that we have been able to grow our bilateral trade and also making sure that Africa as a whole does benefit from South Africa and Chinese um, 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 relationship. We're excited that in less than a week, as I've already said, the anticipated 15 BRICS summit under the chairship of South Africa will commence in Stanton, and definitely the People's Republic of China will also be part. And we're also very excited that the President of China will also be here on a state visit. So we're not only going to be celebrating the summit itself, but the fact that we're having a state visit will definitely ensure that we are able to reach so much of the things that we have always been talking about. As you are aware, the theme of South Africa's chairship of BRICS is entitled BRICS and Africa.
partnership for mutually accelerated growth, sustainable development, and inclusive multilateralism. Accordingly, one of the five priorities of our chairship is strengthening post-pandemic socio-economic recovery and attainment of the 2030 Agenda on Sustainable Development. We recognize that developing countries in the Global South, in particular Africa, and we continue to also recognize that we are still lagging behind in terms of key development, our developmental targets. Therefore, we acknowledge and appreciate how China has asserted itself uh, to support and invest over the years in the entire continent of Africa. Underpinning their support has been a commitment to mutually beneficial relations. At the opening ceremony of the 2018 Beijing Summit of the Forum of China Cooperation, which is focused that I've just spoken about, Chinese um, uh, President Xi Jinping, Ping echoed the sentiments during his keynote address, and I quote, we follow a five-no approach in our relation with Africa. One, no interference in African countries' pursuit of developmental paths that fit their national condition. The second one, no interference in African countries' internal affairs. The third one, no imposition of our will on African countries. The fourth one, no attachment of political strings to assistance to Africa. And lastly, no seeking of selfish political gains in investment and financing cooperation with Africa. This is a clear demonstration, ladies and gentlemen, of China's respect of the autonomy and sovereignty of African countries alongside its commitment to unleashing its developmental potential. Therefore, we anticipate that during our chairship as uh, BRICS or in BRICS, that our existing relation with China, um, the BRICS bloc will support South Africa's foreign objective uh, towards the achievement of a domestic developmental imperative, as well as promoting a broader socio-economic development goals of the African continent. The collaboration goes beyond bilateral trade, as we have already said, and it also includes regional and multilateralism, as we have already said. Ladies and gentlemen, in conclusion, because I don't have to really speak long since um, the Secretary General has really spoken and told us what South Africa actually stands for, I would just like to say as we mark the 10th anniversary of President Xi Jinping's first visit to South Africa in 2013. We would recognize and celebrate the remarkable economic, social, and political strides made under his leadership. We wish the people and government of the People's Republic of China success and peace and prosperity in all that they do. And we definitely are looking forward to welcoming President Xi Jinping during the state visit and definitely in the BRICS summit. Thank you very much.
scholars, students who are here, all protocol. As we always say, SG, as we get to next week, BRIC Summit, I think it is important for us to go back in history for those who criticize South Africa or scholars who hold a very strong pro-global South view that what is happening today is nothing new. We are going through a major global shift in the global politics. In 1955, ANC representatives traveled to Indonesia, Bandan. They went via Egypt. They were observers to the Bandan Conference. And the issues of that time were colonialism, imperialism, disparities, poverty, inequality, the lack of technology transfer, lack of people to people. It was only 10 years since the end of the Second World War, 1945. And in that gathering in Bangdan, Chinese leaders, Indian leaders, leaders of the global south, registered their dismay with the post-1945 world order. Fast forward to today, we are discussing absolutely nothing other than repeating what leaders of 1955, including ANC leaders, that embarked on that trip. We deal in a world in which the dominant Western powers still control, dominate, set the rules, undermine the developed, developing world, and Africa in particular. So it is in that context that I stand to repeat some of the issues that uh, we see, uh, the relationship between South Africa and China, to deal with inequality, um, uh, deal with issues of trade, and figures has already been mentioned. We have seen the growth of people-to-people, -people educational exchange. We have seen quite a number of uh, major infrastructure development, not only in Ethiopia, um, the rail from Ethiopia to Djibouti, uh, not only in Kenya, East Africa, from Mombasa to Nairobi to Naivasha, and getting into Rwanda um, and Tanzania. This strategic relationship between China and South Africa and Africa is centered around a number of key areas and 
the Africa itself, the AU, has made Agenda 2063 as the key and therefore the Belt and Road and Agenda 2063 are similar and the relationship between Beijing and Pretoria and the rest of the continent is nothing else other than finding common areas of convergence between the Belt and Road and Agenda 2063. So let me take this opportunity to wish uh, President Xi Jinping and the rest of the Global South leadership that is coming a successful BRICS summit and pay homage to President Xi Jinping on his state visit to South Africa as we celebrate 25 years of relationship between South Africa and China. A very strong relationship, as you can see, SG has already paved the way and um, SACP and other members of civil society. We've seen the number of our students growing uh, in Chinese universities and we've seen a number of projects and more room is there to ensure that we explore new areas of cooperation. We always say Africans should not be left behind. I think we see other continents. As we speak, the Russians are shooting a satellite to the moon. They might get there before the Americans. The Indians are doing the same. They are shooting to the moon. And the bigger question for us, we want to see Africans getting to the moon and other areas. China is playing a critical area. So in our cooperation, we would like to see more from us as Africans working hard, learn from the Chinese, but at the end of the day, we are our own liberators. We work as comrades in the trenches during the liberation movement. We're in the second phase of that liberation, of economic liberation. Still a long way to go. And let me turn to my brother briefly to thank him for the book that he has written. This is my second time responding to your books. Um, Professor Tembe has done extremely well to narrate this precise relationship of China with the strength on looking at Confucianism and how it interacts with African philosophy of Ubuntu. It's a strong book, uh, clearly written, and a lot of lessons, I think, for all of us, where it shows the similarities between African philosophy, African way of looking at life, and Chinese. And this is in line with President Xi Jinping. New introduction of key concepts, global development initiative, global security initiative, and most important, and perhaps speaking more directly to Professor Tembe, the Global Civilization Initiative. So, Professor Tembe, congratulations on this book, and I think so.
His Excellency Ambassador Chen Xiaodong, uh, Secretary General of the ANC, Comrade Figilen Balula, I have to add the Comrade Pass. <laughs> that's, my <coughs> that's my childhood habit. Uh, uh, Excellency Mr. Mohoba, the Minister and the Presidency for Planning and Monitoring and Evaluation, uh, His Excellency Joseph Opio Wilson Okulu of the South Dakota State in the Republic of South Sudan and currently also a CEO of the New Africa Bank. Uh, His Excellency Hoshi uh, Kikane of the Mandebele A. Levolo, thank you very much to make your acquaintance and uh, all protocol observed. Now I can leave the paper. There is a tendency with scholars wanting to be politicians. And scholars, when they want to be politicians, then they want the high seat. That is a fallacy. As a scholar, what you seek is to be an intermediary between knowledge and policy. And as a scholar, you are therefore an interface or you create interface. As we all say, devil is in the details. Now having said devil is in the details and the, in the interest of cross-cultural communication, Ayo,我很荣幸就是,我有这个机会,在这研究,我就是在选举,刚发布的一篇,但是这个不是我就是选举,这是中非关系的选举,中非关系的发展,现在我们今天,在那个大会,所以我选举的事情在特别难选和中
The presence of BRICS, of FOCAC, of Southwark Corporation is a new system. And in order to understand that, you have to look to the so-called emerging markets. Why, after billions of years on this earth, we have emerging markets? Is because powers that be, systems that were the main ones, are the ones that were promoting their own markets. Newsflash, South Africa and the Global South are no longer emerging markets. They are markets by themselves. What we have is bottle holes which we have to fill. The same way that Secretary General expressed the position of South Africa, the same way that the Minister of Evolution steadfastly and coherently put the position of South Africa. We are not starting a journey. We are completing a journey. This cooperation, what it does for South Africa, especially, it has allowed South Africa to have access to geographical and political spheres where otherwise it wouldn't have had without a stronger relationship with China. Now, I'm not going to repeat all the good of the blueprint, all the manifestations of China-Africa relations. I'm going to be the devil's advocate. If we talk about development, it's because we need new vehicles to reach that development. Devil in the details. Today is also a 10th anniversary of something very important. The four proposals for China-Africa cooperation. If you read them in English, it's very nice. Sincerity, real outcomes, affinity, good faith. But for example, if you take sincerity, which is the Chengyi in Mandarin, and you take Chengxin, which is good faith, affinity, which is about the family, you can travel 4,000 yen back within Kofunial Shianism to understand what are those things. Sincerity can be sincerity to a Bible, first or second testament. Good faith can be being a disciplinarian or something like that, or be faithful to something. But if you read within the Chinese context, that is the rationale and the makeup of a family home, which that rationale then transfers to provincial government. With that provincial government, then it transfers the same model to the highest office in the country. Therefore, when Chinese people say, President Xi Jinping, actually they are trying to say, or they are saying in Mandarin, my father. Within the context that's in the Chinese language, which the country and the family, those are one and the same thing. The same respect you give to your mother and your father. It is here I'm trying to break down how Chinese society lives and how it interprets itself. But also, then I will encourage the Chinese and with scholars like us, Professor Munyai and many more, to translate the African rationale, African value system, onto the Chinese partners. Without further ado, that was just a minor introduction of what is contained within my book, or within our book, so to speak. We've got five bottlenecks that stops South Africa or Africa to have access to the low-hanging fruits of the China-Africa relations. The first one I call lack of public 
awareness. Many people know about China, but they don't know what is at play as we are having relationships with China. That is the chapter 2 of the book, because I have to clear out those ones first in order to understand China as a country, or in order to understand how to access those benefits. The second one is conflict between policy and law, which is no fault of South Africa, but South Africa is a young democracy. There is a schism between South African policy and South African law. Let me just make one relevant example. If you go to an Egyptian law book or Algerian law book, there are not less than 12 to 20 pages on the benefits of direct investment, FDI to the SEZ. In South Africa, we have one little line there at the end, and it's actually making a little bit. So what does that mean? That means the next person who will move into office will just shift that policy because it's amorphous. And there are no consequences because it's not in the book of law. The third one is the one I can't change because of our own political system we've chosen. Short-termism and long-termism. I'll leave only with one question on the third one. How can a country that has been forming and oppressed at the same time for 500 years solve this problem within two political terms, which is 10 years. And by the way, when the new government comes in place, tries to correct with its policy the programs of the previous government, but it's only two terms, only two, on the second term, somebody's preparing for exit. So, there is a spiral of short-termism. We must then find a way of long-term. How will we find that? By having a blueprint in South Africa that is continuous, irrespective of who the incumbent is. And why I'm, putting, I'm raising this point is because China has that continuity. So that will help us create some sort of synergy. I'm not saying let's change our constitution. I'm not saying that let's strengthen the land or make it longer. I'm just saying let's find points of synergy. Now, the last one, which I've observed over the years, 20 years researching China. We are reading from the old book, wanting so much to be neoliberals with all its rights of transparency, of accountability, and yet as we are eating now into the new world that is being built by BRICS, by foreign folk and by all the southern, uh, south-south cooperation countries, we are eating from the new book. From being peripheral, we are coming to the center. But we are insisting to read the book that kept us at the periphery. So in the chapter where I deal with the impact of China, especially President Xi Jinping, in the geopolitical landscape, we have to do something. Because this relationship has shot us very high into bigger spaces. The three words, or the four words that I read, of affinity, sincerity, and uh, real life results, they are, by the way, the four pillars on which President Xi Jinping forms the foreign policy of China-Africa relations. That, that alone, that in China's foreign policy, there's a specific part that has been growing, which started in 2013, as we're talking about the new era, 
It's 10th anniversary. One of the four parts, there was the second China's Africa policy. In 2017, there was people-to-people relations which Professor Munyaye... So we can see a successive development and the rationale that builds and as it develops, it moves us South Africa away in Africa from the periphery to the world center. So as China develops, it is at the same time establishing, in real sense, not on paper, the notion of partnership of equals, mutual respect, mutual benefits, creation of, of uh, common prosperity, and in the process, building a community, a community of a shared future. Thank you very much. Chinese Embassy of South Africa in preparation of the upcoming uh, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa Plus Summit that will be held uh, next week in the Republic of South Africa. Uh, Other countries are seeking membership to BRICS, which has established a new development bank. And uh, in order to continue uh, to follow the situation uh, involving the BRICS Summit, all you need to do is log on to the Pan-African Newswire at at panafricannews.blogspot.com at panafricannews.blogspot.com We'll take a break. Uh, We'll be back with our concluding segment on Black August.
Welcome back, and you're listening to the Pan African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast for Saturday, August 19th. 2023, we're broadcasting uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit. August is uh, Black August, and of course, we're going to move right now into an extended uh, discussion uh, on the Nat Turner Rebellion of 1831 in Southampton County, Virginia. And uh, we're going to be graced uh, with the presence of a descendant uh, of Nat Turner, uh, speaking on uh, his own personal journey, as well as that of the struggle of his ancestor for freedom. Let's listen in. Hello, I'm Lanisha DeBartolaben, President and CEO of the Northwest African American Museum. On behalf of the museum, I welcome you to our Descendants series, an evening with the great, great, great grandson of Nat Turner. We acknowledge that we are on the homelands of the Spokane tribal people. We recognize the indigenous peoples who have been dispossessed and displaced from their ancestral and spiritual homes and the taking of their land through colonization. We honor with gratitude the land itself, the waterways, the indigenous people, and their ancient heritage. We are grateful for and honor our African and African-American ancestors who survived the Ma'atha, the Middle Passage, who endured the violence of slavery and the indignity of racial oppression, who had the courage to pack up and head north and west to the northwest, who blazed trails for us to be here and to be ourselves here. We acknowledge and we take action. As we begin this program honoring the sacred life, legacy, and lineage of Nat Turner, we call out the names of the ancestors who shared the same spirit of liberty as Nat Turner, those like Harriet Tubman, Dred Scott, William Grimes, Solomon Northup, Henry Box Brown, William Wells Brown, William and Ellen Craft, Frederick Douglass, Henry Bibb, and all those unnamed ancestors who stood up against the inhumane system of slavery. We remember them. We honor them. We are because of them. Nat Turner was a hero, a freedom fighter. He stood up to the violent system of slavery for his humanity and for ours, and said through his actions by any means necessary, he would be free. We are here to learn his story, to pay tribute to his courageous sacrifice, and to honor his legacy with his direct descendant, Mr. Bruce Turner, who is with us here today. This program is about reckoning with this shared past. It is about remembering. It's about never forgetting the pain, the difficult decisions, the trauma they endured. We owe our ancestors our attention. 
Most of all, this program and history itself is about our healing. It is about the decisions we are making today to become free and to free others. It is about finding our way forward, rising above every obstacle faced in life. On this exact day, 191 years ago, November 11, 1831, Nat Turner gave up his life for the cause of freedom and liberation. Today, be inspired by his steadfast commitment to humanity, his resistance to oppression, and his faith. Today's conversation will be moderated by Kiantha Duncan, president of the Spokane Branch NAACP. She is a tireless champion for community, for crucial conversations, and for change. Thank you all for joining us to learn about Nat Turner, the one who never stopped believing in and pursuing freedom. Ms. Duncan? Good afternoon, everybody. Good afternoon to those of you who are here and those of you who are in the audience at home watching us as well. Tonight is a very special night. When I say special, I mean very special. I have had the last 24 hours to get to know Mr. Turner, and I think that you all will find him very interesting. He has lots to share with us, lots of information. Mr. Bruce Turner was born in Southampton County, Virginia, and he currently resides in Virginia Beach, Virginia. His lineage to our great, great, great Nat Turner uh, was one in which he can share with us something that we would never know because he gets to share what he knows from his family's perspective as well. So we're looking forward tonight. Since the mid-1990s, uh, Mr. Turner has researched the history of Nat Turner and the Southampton slave insurrection of, 19, of 1881. He received information on the Nat Turner legend form from his grandparents, from his great-grandparents, from his aunts, and from his uncles. We would like to play for you a very short video featuring Mr. Turner. Bruce L. Turner, the great-great-great-grandson of Nat Turner. Bruce Turner's story is a story of spirituality, hope, and the black struggle for freedom and justice in America during slavery. His great-great-great-grandfather, Nat Turner, was a leader, preacher, and an enslaved man who would lead a rebellion of enslaved people against their oppressors in 1831. Nat Turner's rebellion of 1831 made a lasting impact in the decades to follow. Abolitionists following his rebellion exalted the virtues of Nat Turner as a crusader against the evils of slavery. Nat Turner influenced freedom fighters like Frederick Douglass and others. Turner's legacy will continue to be remembered and honored through his family that continues to share his story through oral history and documentation. His great-great-great-grandson, Bruce Turner, spent most of his childhood living in Southampton County, whereby he received an abundance of information on the Nat Turner legend from grandparents, great-grandparents, aunts, and uncles. Since the mid-1990s, Bruce has devoted serious research and investigation into the history of Nat Turner and the Southampton slave insurrection of 1831. Nat Turner 
continues to live on through the life and legacy of Bruce Turner as visionary, liberator, legend. I want to thank you all here in Spokane for allowing me to come and talk with you today about Nat Turner. He was a man whose efforts to correct the terrible wrong did define a moment in history which we all study today. His period in time was when a man as a slave was not human. I want you to keep this in mind. He was a thing. He was just a piece of property. He was a chattel that could be bought and sold or whipped and killed at the will and whim of his legal owner. And only after years of study and following the Christian Bible did he try to change that status and he relieved himself of being a slave as well as to free all other people of a slave. And in all, doing that, Nat passed on to the American public three little words which exist still today, and that was all here and now. Nat wanted all people, all slaves, to be free. He wanted them to be free right here in this country, not in some place sent somewhere else. And he wanted it now, right at that time in August 22, 1831. Today we all live that motto of Nat Turner. And if you take this with you, remember, Nat's motto is all here and now. <laughs> Good evening. All right. So I, thank you. I'm super excited to talk to you tonight. I have enjoyed getting to know you over the last few days and learn about not just your grandfather, great-great-grandfather, but about you as a man, because I think the work that you do really relates directly to your grandfather. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about when was the first time that you understood that you were the Nat Turner's great-great-great-grandson? Well, in answer to your question with that, there really wasn't a time that I didn't know. Uh, as far back as my memory goes, it was always talked about in the family. But we were told, don't tell anybody else. Mm. Because living in Southampton County, Virginia, uh, I was born back in 1948. In the 50s, the 48 and the 50s, segregation was still pretty, was heavily entrenched in Virginia. Uh, a lot of the descendants, the white descendants of families that were killed, lived right next door to us. Mm. We lived on a farm, and they lived on the farm next to ours. So the concept of accepting Nat Turner and openly talking about it was not encouraged. Uh, we used to go out to the places where the homes were attacked, and my grandparents, as well as my aunts and uncles, used to would have times that we would identify with what Nat Turner was, as well as who the people were that came after him. Hmm. So in answer to your question, I don't ever have a memory of not knowing about Nat Turner. Did that cause a sense of fear for your family still living in Virginia Beach? What was that like? In Virginia Beach. Virginia Beach is 80 miles from where okay. I, I grew up at in Southampton County in okay. a little town called Capron. So um, Capron is where I learned about Ned, and I lived there until I was a teenager. Um, going to school, elementary school, as well as through high school, beginning in what we call middle school, the schools were segregated. So we only had a little bit of, of Nat Turner in the history. The county would not allow it to be taught in the history books. Okay. There was only a little marker on the side of the road that says this is where it happened. At. And so it was among the, the black families in the black community to where the history of what Nat Turner was, what he did, was um, passed on. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. How does your great-great-grandfather's work show up in your work today? 
And I know that you're retired now, but you do a lot of really amazing things. And so tell me how those two connect. Okay. Well, in the early part of my um, growing up, I learned that to free your mind was the number one thing. I always used to admire how Ned had taught himself how to read and write, mm -hmm. that he refused to let himself be held down just because he was a slave. Also, too, growing up on a farm, there was a lot of work to do. And one of the ways to get out of work was reading. So I always made sure I had a book in my hand every day. <laughs> to keep you from doing any work. Okay, <laughs> to keep got me it. from doing any work. Got it. Particularly out in the fields, picking cotton, you know, pulling in corn, peanuts. We, on a, our farm was a working farm. Okay. And so everything you could imagine a farm work was available for us to do. Um, my father was in the Navy, and as such I had an opportunity to travel and sometimes to go to other places. Uh, like I say, in my teen years, I was some of the students who were selected to integrate the schools. Okay. So I went Do you through, remember that? Yes. Tell me about it. Integration was a very painful process. A lot of the white families used to would stand in front of the schools and throw rocks at us and spit at us. The highway patrol on my first day of going to an integrated school had to open up a corridor for the black students to walk through. It was only three black students in this whole school. And I remember when I was in high school, there was only 11 black students of about 1,600 students in the school. And one day in the classroom in history, when we hit on the Nat Turner story, the teacher asked me, what was I related to Nat Turner because we had the same last name. So you can imagine what that was like to be able to respond to that. At first I thought about, well, I wouldn't say that I was because mm -hmm. it was easy to be just anonymous in the classroom. Mm -hmm. But I always felt it was right to stand up and to admit who my heritage was. And so I did. I told what him, did you say? I told him that, yes, he was in my lineage, that he was my great-great-great-grandfather. And I explained to the class the lineage that came to me was through my father, Herbert Turner, Jr., through his father, Herbert Turner, through her, his mother, Fanny Turner, who was the last person born in slavery in 1856, to Nat's youngest daughter, Charlotte, who was born on May the 30th, 1830, the year before he was executed. And that uh, we were proud of our heritage. And the white students in the classroom did express some of those real classic I would say emotions that mm -hmm. come along with misunderstanding. But I think they learned something to that day that Nat Turner was a real person mm -hmm. and that he wasn't something myth. And that we would, you know, people were there and he was worth learning for them learning something about. Well, that's one of the things that I was looking most forward to talking to you about mm -hmm. is that he's not a myth. It's not a myth. You have the real story about what yes. really happened. And it's, as it's portrayed in books and movies, it's very different. I yes. learned that from you. So we would love to hear a little bit more about that. But before we do that, I'd like to know this. Today is the day. Mm -hmm. It happened today. On his death. On his death. It mm -hmm. happened today. Right. 11, on, a, on August the 30th, on that, on November the 11th, 1831, just a little after 11 o'clock, according to the jailers, he recorded because he had to record it in order to um, present to the court that mm -hmm. the prisoner had been executed. Mm -hmm. and that was taken from the jail to the place of execution, which was a large sycamore tree in the town of Jerusalem. Back today, but today that town is now called Cortland. Cortland, okay. Right. That tree existed there until about the 1960s, and he was hanged. He was allowed to carry his Bible that he had in his in, that he had when he was ex, when he was originally captured, and that Bible today is in the African American Museum in Washington D.C. Um, I was there when President Obama 
uh, opened the magazine, opened the museum, mm -hmm. and one of the first articles in which that everyone looked at was Nat Turner's Bible. Hmm. I've looked into that Bible myself. It has some of his original handwritings inside of it. Wow. It's a little small Bible that fit inside of his pocket. And after he was executed, the city of, of the, not the city, but the state of Virginia paid $375 to the relatives of Nat's masters because he had killed them. $375. Because the state had executed a valuable piece of property. Wow. So even in death, he was still viewed as property. As I said before, slaves were not human mm -hmm. in terms of the, the laws of Virginia at that time, and even in the, basically in the laws of the United States. They were things. They were not even citizens. They were not, they had no recourse. Right. It was amazing that they actually gave Nat a trial before they hanged him. He was captured on the 31st of October, and then his, ex, his trial was on November the 5th. Mm -hmm. He was charged with murder, sedition, treason, and insurrection. Mm -hmm. And I'd say 11 days later, he was executed. What do you think he'd be saying if he were alive right now? Would, he, would the world be where he would think that it would be? Because I feel like some days I think we get very far and we've made lots of movement and things have happened. And then other days I'm like, we're still in, Yeah, you know. Well, I think that if Nat was alive today, he would be very pleased with the progress. Please. Uh, pleased with the progress that his family has made. Okay. Okay. He went from having absolutely nothing, from having, couldn't even have his own, he didn't even have, say, possession of his own body. His he actually got married, we believe, at around about 1818 or 1819. His wife's name was Cherry. Okay. They had at least five children. And out of those five children, Charlotte, the youngest one, was the only one that lived that had children that we know of. We know that one of his daughters named Sally was sold to North Carolina, but we don't know what had happened to her. Nat himself and Sherry were sold, split up and sold separately in, in, 19, in 1822, in June of that year. The bill of sales of those records are still on the court records. And that was sold for $450 to a man named Tom Moore, and Cherry was sold for $175 to a man named Yields Reese. So sold for $450, but 450. then upon death, refunded right. $350. $375. $375, okay. Because don't forget, there had been a little depreciation from the time when he was sold in 1822, wow. where he was 22 years old. And in the slave system, a 31-year-old man was considered to be past his middle age. So he was not as valuable in terms of working in 1831 as he was in 1822. And he was considered not as valuable because the average lifespan for a black person in was about 40, 45 was years old. 40, 45. Yeah, wow. that, that, was, that was lucky if they got that far. Right. A few live beyond that, but mostly it was, it was averaging out at about 40 to 45. Okay. What can you tell us? Now, this is, are you listening? I'm listening. What can you tell us about Nat Turner as a man? Okay. So not what we've read about, not what's in the textbooks. What can you tell about him as a man, as a okay. person? Well, I will give you the beginnings of it. Okay. As a child, Nat was actually, his real name was Nathaniel. That's what he was born in 1800 to Benjamin Turner. Okay. Who was a prosperous generation, third generation slave owner and, uh, Farmer. His next mother was named Nancy. She was an African slave. In the bill of sale, when Benjamin, Tanner, when Benjamin Turner purchased her, described her as being an olive brown complexion African female of not of the usual Negro region, which means that most likely she was from the East African side of Africa. Nat lived under Benjamin Turner's ownership for 10 years. 
from 1800 until 1810 when Benjamin Turner died. Mm -hmm. It was here that during that time period, Ned Lander taught himself how to read and write. He taught himself, he started learning about the Bible. He had at least one grandmother who was alive during that time. Her name was Bridget. Most likely he was Ned's um, father's mother mm -hmm. because Ned's father had escaped somewhere before Ned got out of childhood, but we never knew his name or what did he look like. Mm -hmm. but, he, but Ned referred to his father twice in his confession, so we can draw the conclusion that he did know about someone as a father figure. Um, it was also Bridget who said a phrase, of, she was coined a phrase rather, that supposedly passed down with Ned through his lifetime. Okay. She said he, was, he had too much sense to be raised, and if he was, he would never be of any use to anyone as a slave. Too much sense to, to be, be raised. raised. And, and if, if he, he was, was, he would be of no use to anyone as a slave. Wow. When Benjamin Turner died in 1810, he will, he will net as well as Cherry and some of the, about 17 other slaves over to his son, Samuel Turner. And then he let Nat live with Samuel Turner from 1810 until 1822. It was during this time period where he began to get the feelings or say this, the messages from God to become a preacher. Mm -hmm. So Nat was a preacher. Mm -hmm. He also was a carpenter. He was a metal worker. He knew how to make tools. Okay. He wasn't just a field worker. He worked in the fields too. But he had many other skills. Mm -hmm. And most of the people in that area recognized him as being a man way with education beyond not only the slaves, but mm -hmm. of most of the white people. Mm. You have to take into account most white people at that time couldn't read or write either. So to have a slave in their presence who not only could read the Bible and preach the Bible, but also could do many other skills, was considered to be something of an asset. And so Samuel Turner allowed him to go about from plantation to plantation or from church to church to preach, which he did. He preached to the slaves in the area, and that's how he got to be known very, by many people, and he was accepted as a man of God as well as a man of his word. Hmm. And then from Samuel Turner died in 1822, Net was that's when he was sold mm -hmm. to Tom Moore, mm -hmm. and so actually physically by the name and by the the laws of Virginia, his name of Nat Turner changed to Nat Moore, mm -hmm. but Tom Moore allowed him to keep his name of Turner. And, and why do you think he did that? Uh, I think Tom Moore probably felt that Nat was an asset to him. He could get extra money from him from his preaching, as well as from some of the the neighborhood. He could also hire Nat out. He hired him out to other farms to do metalworking, to do um, you know, farming work, or to do uh, specific buildings, and, you know, things like that. So Tom Moore could realize economically mm -hmm. there was an advantage to let Nat keep his name. Mm -hmm. Do you think he ever feared that with Nat having so much information and being able to read that there would be what ultimately came? I don't think so. Because mm -hmm. Tom Moore owned Nat from 1822 to 1828 when he died. Okay, six years. Six years. And then when he died... Tom Moore's youngest, only son, Putman Moore, who was about six years old, five or six years old, inherited Nat as property. Mm -hmm. And he became Nat's new owner. So at five years old, he owned a 28-year-old man, wow. as well as 17 other slaves. But during that time, Nat was now well-established as a preacher. Mm -hmm. He had also began to receive signals from God that said that slavery was wrong and he was ordained to change it. He said that he had received signals that said that the first would be last and the last should go first, mm -hmm. and that he should take on the yoke that Christ had borne for the sins of men. 
Hmm. So that that's really interesting because most people, I think, when you think about Nat Turner and you you think about him from the lens that you read, right? There is this dangerous person who did this very dangerous thing. But yeah. what you are saying is he was actually a man of of faith. He was a man of faith. He was a man of God. He believed in the Bible. Okay. He believed, one of his favorite uh, passages in the Bible was from the book of Matthew. Seek ye the kingdom of heaven, and all things shall be added unto you. Mm-hmm. He always used that as a phrase of opening up his, his sermon, so he said. Um, Benjamin Turner, with his first master, had provided some land for a church to be built that was known as Turner's Church. And that was allowed to preach to slaves in the backyard of the church. Uh, he preached there from probably from like 1820 all the way up until 1831. His last sermon was the week before the insurrection. He preached to a large crowd of slaves in the backyard at Turner's Church, mm-hmm. and it was there he also gave out coded messages to the slaves that he was going to start the insurrection. On the inside of Turner's Church on that same day, a Reverend Richard Whitehead, a white minister, preached to the white congregation, and they would all meet up again later on in another week mm-hmm. under different circumstances. Mm-hmm. But um, net as a man, insurrection only came to him because he felt that he was directed by God to, to take an action to end slavery. Now, how do you think, because I know we talked about this, but what do you think it was that made him interpret that message when the Bible said, Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not kill, and talked about slaves and, and yeah. having ownership over people. Right. So how, did, how do you think he got there? Uh, it was a slow process. Um, one of the things that Nat did mention in, the, in his confessions from the Bible, that he who knows his master's will and does it not shall be mocked with many stripes. That is from Luke, I think, chapter 12, verse 11. Um, Nat believed in the Bible. He studied it all the time. Mm-hmm. He fasted on fasting days. He baptized people. He himself was baptized as a Christian in 1825. He and a white man named Ethred Brantley baptized each other in the crowd in front of white people and black people. Mm-hmm. And at that baptizing, Nat claimed that he was a free man because he was now a disciple of God. I don't know how well that set with the white population. In which God became his master at that God point. God became his master. Uh-huh. And, but he still had to do the work of his earthly master. Uh-huh. In 1827, he decided to run away from Tom Moore. But he stayed away for 30 days and he came back on his own because he said, that's when he said that God told him that he who, does his, who knows his master's will and does it not. Hmm. So he became back because he was ordered by God to go back into slavery. But he began to get signs and signals that told him that God wanted him to end slavery and would use him as the instrument to do that. So that's the only time when he started to go from being a very complacent man to becoming one who sought out militancy as a way to end slavery. So let's talk about that militancy. Okay. The rebellion. The rebellion. Tell me. Well, the rebellion actually only happened for three days. Mm-hmm. Ned had planned it for almost three years. He started in 1828, according to his confessions, of the t- deciding that slavery had to be ended, but he didn't know how to do it at first. So what he did was he started studying the area as he would go about from farms to farms to uh, preach to the slaves. He started preaching to the slaves about the Old Testament philosophies of an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, and the right for vengeance, mm-hmm. particularly for a wrong like slavery. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was his way of preparing the slaves so that they themselves would know that victory could be won mm-hmm. if they followed him. 
and that this was the will of God. And this was the will of God. It was not profit. It was not economics. Uh-huh. He was not looking to take over anything. Uh-huh. He was looking to end slavery so that all slaves would be free. He wasn't looking for his own freedom. And that was one of the things, I think, that separated Nat from a lot of people who did rebel or show some type of signs of you know, opposing to slavery. They only looked out for their own freedom. Mm-hmm. He was looking out for the freedom for everyone, man, woman, child, it didn't matter. And what you could understand, someone looking out for their own freedom. You yeah. know, nobody wants to be a slave. Right. So that makes sense, but knowing that he even had that compassion in his heart at that time, that I'm not just going to free me and figure it out for me, but I'm going to take Everybody, Everybody with me, this freedom is for everyone. Right. And everyone would also have to bear the same sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Now, that was, to me, was a tremendous uh, advantage, or say not advantage, but a skill, for him to be able to convince people whose whole life had been told that they were not worth anything, mm-hmm. that they, are, you know, they had been separated from their families, they were not allowed to own anything, and to get people to believe that they could become free men and free women by following the orders that he received from God. Mm-hmm. And then to back that up, in February of 1831, there was a total eclipse of the sun. And that was a tremendous um, sign. Mm-hmm. Everyone saw that. Black, white, it was well recorded, so we know that it happened. And that said that that's what he used as the final signal to tell the slaves God was on their side. Mm-hmm. So he assembled his first army of, of, three, of six people to start it with him, with six slaves named Henry, Jack, Will, Sam, uh, Nelson, and Hawk. Okay. And together, on the next leadership, with only weapons like knives and axes and pitchforks, they started off on August the 21st at night, on foot, in the dark, in August, extremely hot in Virginia at that time, to try to free themselves and everybody else out of slavery. To me, that was one of the greatest undertakings I think anyone could have ever done because it required a tremendous amount of faith. Mm-hmm. I've lived out in those woods, and it can be extremely black dark out there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Been a little bit of a mathematician myself and astronomer. I did some calculations back, and on that particular night on August 21, in 1831, the moon was in its fourth quarter, what they call the, 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 the first quarter. Mm-hmm. So it was only just a sliver of the moon. So it was not very well lit. So they had to find their way through the woods. Pitch black. Pitch black. Mm-hmm. And they covered 20 miles doing it. 20 miles. Mm-hmm. So not just to walk 20 miles, but to walk 20 miles and then. And then you attack homes. Yes. His plan was to kill the, the, the owners of, of slaves in their homes. And the first home that he attacked was his own home that he lived in, mm-hmm. in which there were the five white people in that home. Mm-hmm. Joseph Travis, Sally Moore, or Savage Sally Travis, Putman Moore, um, a little boy named William who was an apprentice, and Joseph Jr. Though Sally and, Joseph, and uh, Joseph's baby was a year old. They killed all five of the white people there, and then that technically became a free man. Because his masters were dead. Because his masters were dead. Hmm. And they went from farm to farm throughout the night and the next day and attacking the farms in the areas that had slaves. He didn't attack homes that did not own slaves. Mm-hmm. Quakers particular. There were a lot of Quaker families living in the area, and he bypassed each one of their homes. So this was not, it was not about just being this evil person doing this terrible deed of, you know, murdering all the white people around. It really was him saying, no, I'm going to do something myself, and with 
my people to mm-hmm. free my people. Right, and he only targeted those who were enslaving people. Wow. And, um, and But he had also had told his followers that neither age nor sex nor social status Matter. was to be spared. Mm-hmm. And Richard Whitehead, Reverend Richard Whitehead, and his family of five were all killed. Mm-hmm. You know, I told you that the, the week before, he and Ned had both preached mm-hmm. at Turner's Church, he inside, Ned outside. Mm-hmm. The next week, he and quite a few of the members of the church came on the, how would you say, meeting each other but different circumstances. The roles had changed. And total, 55 whites was killed in the first initial area of the attack. And then the next day, after they had covered almost 20 miles, they came into conflict with um, armed militias of whites who they fought a battle. They eventually won the battle, but they lost a lot of, he lost a lot of his men. Mm-hmm. They tried to move to another area because they wanted to attack the town of Jerusalem where he could fortify the town, raise an army, mm-hmm. and then they would force the government to set all slaves free. Um, unfortunately, the militias with, that were much better armed than they were uh, eventually broke up his band, and then Nett was forced to go out and hide out for 74 days. One of the things that was probably uh, very disturbing to Nett, a lot of the blacks fought alongside the whites against him. Let's talk about that. Okay. You are a person of color, mm-hmm. and you are trying to do something for all Uh-oh. black people, and a portion of the people who you're working for are working against you. Tell me about that. I thought that to me, when I first learned about that, I felt betrayed. I thought, you know, I felt Net would have been enormously betrayed hmm. because he was, like you say, he was putting his life on the line. And the people who had joined him, they were putting their life on the line. But at the same time, I could understand mm-hmm. why people did it because this was all they knew. That's right. That's right. Um, and they, too, might have been following Bible. that Bible that said... Yeah. Do not Honor kill. your masters and do not kill. Right. Uh-huh. And I look at it and I think about living is an intoxicant. Hmm. When the, the worst condition of living is better than the most opulent surroundings of being dead. Mm-hmm. Ask King Tut. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. He was buried with all his riches, but he was still dead. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think if he had had an opportunity to live another 30 years to give up all those riches, he would have taken the, 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 death. the, the no, he would have taken the 30 years. Mm. Anyone would. So I could not fault the slaves who fought against Nat because to them, that was their way to live. It was survival. It was survival. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we look back at it, put ourselves in that same situation, and you put yourself in that same situation. Mm-hmm. You have children. You, if you know that if you go out and join these people. The punishment is going to be something be horrific. terrible. Mm-hmm. And you want to protect the life of the children, if not your life, but the life of the children. Right. So you had to make a choice right then and there. And I'd say, I, I always tell people when I would give sports to anybody, ask yourself, would you have been the one to have joined him knowing that what you were facing? Mm-hmm. And I don't think many people had the nerve to do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I don't fault the, the slaves who fought against him. I just feel sorry for them. Hmm. How do you reconcile that murder, by any means murder, mm-hmm. is not good? To murder another person is not good. How do you reconcile that with the work that he was doing and the reason he was doing it for was ultimate good? Mm-hmm. Where do you see that? Well, murder is that little fine line between killing. Um, 
when you kill a chicken to eat it, is that murdering the chicken or are you killing it because you need sustenance? In war, soldiers are taught to kill. I was in the military, mm-hmm. and that in, in, embeds into your mind. You have to kill the enemy before the enemy kills you. Mm-hmm. Uh, in that case, when you're looking at it to where the, the slave owners were the enemy, and they killed slaves all the time. Like I say, a white master could kill a slave at any time if he wanted. For no to, reason at all. For no reason at all. Mm-hmm. Any white person could just take a person out, and then they did. They just they couldn't do it. They could do it. They did it all mm-hmm. the time. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to overthrow a system of that, you have to overthrow it completely. You got to be thorough. Mm-hmm. And the people that were killed, whether they were man, woman, or a child, because children could own slaves, mm-hmm. women could own slaves. They all benefited from it. Mm-hmm. So just not just killing the, the adult white males, you're not murdering. When in a battle, you're eliminating the enemy because it is either you kill them or they will kill you. So it's a matter of survival. So Net didn't murder people as much as to say, I don't look at it, I don't call it murder. Mm-hmm. It was a justifiable homicide. Hmm. Justifiable <laughs> homicide. Okay. I think some people will, you know, yeah, not so agree with that. that. Yeah, that's that morality involved. Yeah, but there. that's the interesting way to look at it, a justifiable homicide based on the reasons he was doing it. Yes. Now, tell me how you feel he felt on that first night. So I want to go back to before okay. all of it ended and he's in the in the woods on that first night. Well, on the first night when they started, they assembled at a place called Cabin Point. Okay. And at first, most of the, a lot of the slaves did not want to kill all the whites or kill the white masters. They said, maybe we would just kill the, white, the males mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. maybe we'll just tie them up. But Nat was insistent upon that they had to be eliminated. Mm-hmm. And he was, the, he was selected to be the person to make the first blow. So when they went to the home of his master, Nat went into his master's chamber while he was in bed sleep. This was at night. Okay. He hit him over the head with an axe. Hmm. It didn't quite kill him. And then one of Nat's lieutenants named Will finished him off. And then Nat's, um, Joseph Travis's wife, Sally, sat up and said, what's happening? And Will chopped her head off with his axe. Mm-hmm. And I won't get into any so they, But these were gruesome murders. They, they were, were they killing. Were, they were killing. Because yeah. they didn't have any guns. They only had knives, axes. And maybe a pitchfork or two, just regular common farm instruments so they could get their hands on. Mm-hmm. And then they used those. They could work from home. And it's at Joseph Travis's house, they did get a gun or two and some powder. And they went to the next, which the next house they hit was Salazia Francis. They killed him. And he only had one slave, but they freed him. And at Joseph Travis, at the, the Travis farm, there were also like, a total of 17 slaves, of which nine of them were, were male. Two of them were young boys, so they, were, they didn't join. So he picked up, as he would go from farm to farm, he would pick up people. Mm-hmm. And they would kill the, uh, everybody who was there if they were slave owners. Mm-hmm. Wow. And they killed them with whatever weapons they could get their hands on. Mm-hmm. So that night after the first, kill, uh, the, the first killings had happened, he's back in the field because they have to hide. No, they kept moving. Oh, they kept moving. Okay. But they had mm-hmm. to sleep. No, they oh, they just kept going. They kept going. Okay. They started off that midnight, like I said, that night on the 21st, and they stayed on the move all the way to the 24th. Wow. Which they didn't stop to sleep or eat. Well, some of them did stop to eat, but they went and unfortunately some of his uh, captain, some of his recruits decided to hit the liquor steals 
or the liquor stashes of their masters because they had helped the masters make the liquor. Mm-hmm. Almost every home had a liquor still back then. Mm-hmm. Um, the whites enjoyed their spirits. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was well known for their brandy in that area, their peach brandy in particular. So the slaves got into some of that, and unfortunately, uh, some of, he lost some of his fighters because of that. But by the same token, some of his fighters got a lot of courage. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, because <laughs> they can do either one to you, kill you or give you lots of courage. Okay. Right. So they are going for four days straight, yes. four days straight. So this is happening every few hours or however often it took for them to so get the to the The distances between some of the houses was only about a half a mile, but some of the houses that they went to covered as much as three miles before they would go. Okay. And they had to do a, go about it very stealthily. Mm-hmm. And it was when the sun came up, they had already killed about 22 people, but they still had to move and they would come in very fast. They, by that time, they had managed to get some horses and mules, and so uh, some of them were mounted, mm-hmm. and um, they would prevent the, the, the whites from escaping, and then they would convince the slaves to join them. But also at the same time, too, they ran into some slaves who did fight against them. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of them even put up roadblocks to try to stop them. But the unfortunate thing was that he couldn't get to the town of Jerusalem because of a river that stood between him and the town. And the whites were able to fortify the two bridges which he could cross. Okay. And he couldn't get across, and then from that they were able to rally and get more troops in, and eventually with just the power of their weapons, he was defeated. So tell me what you think he felt when he was finally captured. I think that Nat Turner made himself be captured. He was able to hide for 74 days, almost right in front of the whites. He went right back to where his home was, even though the masters and all those had been killed, mm-hmm. and he stayed within the area. His wife, Cherry, was living in a place that was only about a half mile. She was living with Gills Reese. They didn't attack Gills Reese's house, and when the whites began to retaliate for the um, insurrection, Gills Reese protected Cherry and the children. That's how Charlotte survived from the vengeance from being executed by white bombs. Um, I think Nat wanted to, during that time, of, he was out running around for you know, being captured, avoiding being captured, he realized that he wanted to let the, the population know why he did the insurrection. Mm. And he did try to recruit more people. And when he was finally captured, he was actually betrayed by two white guys, two black guys, I'm sorry, by two, two slaves that had gone out hunting, mm-hmm. and they came across his hiding place, and they went back and told their masters where he was, and then the militias surrounded the area, and they kept, he kept trying to avoid them, and then he decided to give himself up to a man named Benjamin Phelps on, on October the 30th. That was, I'd say, 74 days after the insurrection had started. Mm-hmm. And then they took him from there. It's amazing that they didn't execute him right there in the woods. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. from where he was captured, it was about 11 miles to where they took him to, to the town of Jerusalem, where the court was. And the governor of Virginia had demanded that there be trials for the slaves. So there was seven. There was a total of 29 trials of all the slaves that had been captured. 17 was executed, including one woman who was mm-hmm. executed. Mm-hmm. Her name was Venus. And uh, Nett was the last of the ones to be executed. Uh, out of the, tw- the others, most of them were manumented. They were sold south mm-hmm. out of the state. Mm-hmm. And a couple of them were actually returned back to their masters because their masters came in and said they had been a good slave, and they would make sure that they would stay out of trouble if they gave them back to them. Wow. Because don't forget, the slaves were property. They had value. Wow. Wow. So based on how slaves were treated back then, period, mm-hmm. they probably didn't give them a horse to walk those 11 miles. No. Yeah. 
He rode that, they actually rode him on the back of a wagon, according okay. to the, uh, some of the history from that time period. And crowds of whites were gathered along the, the little narrow roads and lanes, and they were demanding that he be hanged right then and there. Mm-hmm. They threw rocks and bricks at him. And uh, by the time they got him to the jail, he was not in the best of shape. But they did put him in the jail, and then Thomas Gray, a local lawyer, came in and asked Nett would he like to confess or would he like to write, tell why he did what he did. Mm-hmm. So in three days, in a three-day period, Nett gave almost continuously a confession, which mm-hmm. Thomas Gray wrote down, as he said, word for word. That is what we really know about Nett Turner mostly, because in that he described his life, himself, why he did what he did. Mm-hmm. It also gave the whites a timeline how the people were killed. Mm-hmm. And they used that confession in his trial to where that um, it was read in the court. A couple of people testified against him, including one black person. Mm-hmm. And um, the court made up a 10, what they called magistrates, because he was, you have to take of this, slaves were property. They were not citizens. So they couldn't be tried as a In a regular being. court, mm-hmm. right. He was tried in what was called small claims court, mm-hmm. court of awe. Mm-hmm. And as a piece of property, it was determined whether or not he should be terminated, which would be the loss of that property. <laughs> wow. So in, the, in his last moments, do you think that he felt? a sense of righteous indignation, or do you think that he felt fear for what was getting ready to happen? Do you think he felt satisfied with what he was able to accomplish in those 74 days? I go back from his confession okay. and what it said and from the records to the jailer. Okay. The jailer, who I actually had an opportunity to meet a descendant of the jailer, mm. and they had some records in their family, and the jailer had wrote down that Nat's demeanor was that of a man who was ready to meet his Savior, and that he said to the crowd of people that he had no regrets for the insurrection, for he had done the work that God had directed him to do. Hmm. Now, one of the things you can take into account for this, as they went from farm to farm, they only killed people. They did not burn down any buildings. They didn't burn any crops or kill animals. The people who were killed, men and women, were not violated upon. You know, the, the fear that... They would turn into mass raping and all that. Mm-hmm. None of that happened. They only killed the people who were the owners to free their slaves. Mm-hmm. So he was not looking. And they didn't steal items from the homes. They only just killed the people and then moved on and took their slaves with them. And some would say, well, okay, taking the slaves with them was a form of stealing. But they didn't, they didn't have a, a, a wagon load of booty mm-hmm. falling, mm-hmm. so to speak. Mm-hmm. They were not like pirates. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He was strictly given by God was to kill people. And he didn't try to get his own personal freedom. Because, like I say, for, 20, for 74 days, they were looking for him and they couldn't find him. He was the most, most wanted man in maybe all America at that time. Well, I would almost think that he knew that he would not get his own freedom, that he knew that at some point he would be captured, mm-hmm. he would be hung. And so he absolutely was doing it for the freedom of the other people. Yes. And that's what he said in his, in his confession, that it was not for him. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that the whites tried to do was to discredit his intelligence. The word had passed around many times before that Nat was very intelligent. He knew how to make paper. He could make gunpowder. He knew how to calculate the, uh, the tides and the stars. He could move it. That's why they were able to move about. He knew how to read the stars so that he could tell where they were going. Mm-hmm. And there was a, a team of white men who came from the, from the University of, of William & Mary at that time. 
which was in Williamsburg, was about 40 miles away. They came to the jail and they supposedly examined Ned and questioned him. They wanted to prove that he was not intelligent, but they went away scratching their heads because he was able to answer all of their questions. Right, right. So when he was executed, his head was taken off from his body and given over to those very same doctors who had come from William and Mary to take it back to study. So speaking of questions, we want to give a chance for our audience to ask you some questions. <laughs> and I know that you are overly prepared for that. But there are some folks, and, and I want to give the caveat that some people may not agree that it was done from the perspective of wanting to save other people. It was done, you know, by God giving him the order to do that. There may be some folks in this audience that doesn't, you oh, know, they, they, they don't, yeah. that doesn't work for them. People still today still say that he was wrong. Okay. There's some who said that he should have just restricted the killing to white males only. Okay. And children and women should not have been killed. Okay. So I could expect that, yeah. Okay. So let's get, <laughs> let's get ready. Do we have any questions in our audience? Anyone interested in knowing something about Mr. Turner here or his great-great-great-grandfather? Anyone? Okay. How important is it for your kids to carry the same lesson? Okay. The question was, how is it important for my kids, my, mm -hmm. my descendants, to carry the lesson? Okay, I have three children, two boys and a girl, and I have six grandchildren, five girls and a boy. I made sure that they know, and I tried to give them all the information. That was one of my reasons for why I did so much research. Um, when I was about 40, my early 40s, one of my great aunts, she was the last of my grandfather's sisters and brothers who was alive, said that she wanted to know exactly how the family was related to Nat Turner. It was always stories, but we didn't have any real documentation. And so she said, well, I'm, she, I know you're one of those boys that go to college and all that. Can you use your... your Back then, they used to call it intelligence, not intelligence. Intelligence, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> and she would like to know. She was 89 at that time. And so I took it upon myself. I started looking through records. At first, I didn't know how to do it. And then I thought about, well, why not look at the U.S. Census reports? So I started looking at census data reports, and they go back to the 1870s. Every 10 years, there's a census taken. So in 1860, slaves were not on the census in Virginia, mostly as free people. They were on there strictly under the names of their masters. If they, the masters would either say he's got so many females, so many males. Mm -hmm. But since I knew the names of some of the masters, I was able to put them in place in the 1860s. 1870 was the first census taken after slaves had been freed in 1865. And then in 1870, 1880, 1890, that's when I saw my grandma. 1870, I see my grandma, great-grandma Fanny on there, who is Nat's granddaughter, along with Charlotte, who is Nat's daughter. And they were living in the place which was right next to the John Clark Plantation, which was one of Benjamin Turner's son. And in 1880, they're in the same location. And then by that time, Fanny had gotten old enough to where she was starting to have children, so some of the children are listed. And then the 1890 census was destroyed in a fire, but the 1900-1910 census, so that's how I first started to put the line together. And then I started going to the county courthouse looking at the records. I found out that everything that had happened on the courts, all the court cases were recorded, and those books are still there. Then I decided, okay, well, I knew who Benjamin Turner and Samuel Turner, I looked to see that they have wills. Mm. And I found in the will books, there are wills. 
uh, I looked, started looking through the books of transfers of property. Anytime someone bought and sold a slave, they had to pay taxes on it. Mm. So if you follow the money, you could find out who was being sold on such a day and who, how much they were paid for. Or when someone died and their family wanted to uh, appraise the estate, there would be an appraisal made and all of their property would be valued. So that was the sources that I was able to put together. And so I was able to put it together, and I presented it to my Aunt Corinne, and she was so pleased. She brought, you know, brought tears to her eyes because she always wanted to know if those stories that she was told mm-hmm. and that she had told her children, she had eight children, and all the years in which that we knew about it, the, the farm that she grew up on is the farm where Nat Turner was actually captured on. And um, so I felt that I had done a great service to someone, and I passed that around to other people in the family, and everybody wanted to know more. They kept saying, well, do one for me, do one for me. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, so my profession is computer science, computer science. I've worked in the computer industry field for a long time, for 40 years. So I did some of this in relation to some of my work. I, was, I, did some, I had done some um, um, programming for the Department of Education, and also for the Department of Defense. So I had access to the congressional records, as well as I got state com- um, access to the state records. And I started going through and researching all that and putting it together. So I passed that information. I got a large volume of information now, and then I started connecting up with other people. I found out that there were other scholars, a lot of scholars out there, who was actually writing about Nat Turner. Uh, William Drury had wrote a book about the insurrection in 1899. I had never known that until I started researching. Uh, Henry Tragel had a, great, a very good book on Nat Turner. Uh, Scott French at the University of Virginia had a chance to meet with him. He was a historian. Kent, Kenneth Greenberg, and I got to start getting the idea of maybe I could put this information together and present it. Mm-hmm. And some of the schools in the area, when they found out about it, they asked me to start coming to make presentations, like I did yesterday at a high school or at some of the colleges and universities. And so it was like a an accidental step into it, but I made sure that I tried to make sure that the information was all correct. And are your kids carrying that down now? We so talked the, a bit about that yesterday. To a certain degree. I mean, they're not taking it on as like as much as I would like for them. Well, you're but, still active. But I'm still active. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm still, mm-hmm. I'm still here. Um, they have never lived on the farm. We still own our farm that we've had since the 1880s. Um, they go back that, that far. And the farm is only about five miles from where Nat Turner originally lived. So that's how I knew about it growing up in it. And so I'm faced with the dilemma that where I have this property that I, you know, my grandkids are not interested in it, but I want them to continue to maintain it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the churches down there, the where the families all live, and I take them out to the cemetery so they can see who their grandparents were, their great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents, and always impress it upon them that they're, I'm the third great-grandparent son of Nat Turner, mm-hmm. but my grandchildren are the fifth great-grand mm-hmm. per- persons of, of Nat Turner. Mm-hmm. Now, having only one grandchild that's a Turner, and that's happened to be a girl, from my side of the line of Turner, they made the line may end with the name Turner, but it'll still go on. There's lots of other Turners in the family. Mm-hmm. Um, my great-grandmother Fanny had 10 children, and most of those children had 10 children, uh, 6, 10, 12 children each. Which was common. Which was common at that time. And was done to support the families and, and their field the work. Absolutely. Right. Oh, yeah. And um, so you know, there are a lot of other turners out there and the people. So I pass the information readily around to them. Mm-hmm. Now, just not looking at it only to my, my children, 
I give it freely to anyone in the family who wants it. Absolutely. Do we have any other questions? We have one in the back and one on this side. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I work in a public school, and I'm on a mission this year to help our young black kids understand the power of history, of their history. And a lot of young people kind of, I grew up with a grandmother and a great-grandmother and a mother who told me black history, right? And I was very interested in it. But I tend to find that in 2022, they don't realize that Emmett Till died just 67 years ago. And one twofold question, what call to action do you have about the power of history for today's black youth? And how did your knowing your own family history, how did it shape your personal identity? Because some people don't have the luxury of knowing the stories that you know about your third great grandfather. And I think it's amazing. Um, I was the nerdy kid who wanted to know. My cousins not so much. But I realize that there's power in that, and I see the need for that in today's black kids so that they know how to carry the history into their future. Okay. Well, the answer to the first part of your question, as I told you before, growing up on the farm is always looking, trying to get out of work. And so for me, learning was the best way to keep them having to go and work in the hot sun. And I often look back at it and say, well, maybe I had that innate ability because Nat taught himself how to read. And I look at it and I think that his opportunities that he had when he was growing up, the fact that he was able to become a preacher, that he could. Welcome back. And uh, that was the great, great, great grandson of uh, the legendary Matt Turner, who we commemorate this Black August, who uh, began an insurrection against uh, enslavement in Southampton County, Virginia, in uh, 1831 on August the 22nd. And that's going to conclude our program uh, for today. Uh, if you'd like to have access to this program, just go to our website, and uh, that is at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And that would be the Pan-African Radio Network. If you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. And uh, we'd like to thank everyone for tuning in to this program on this Saturday, August the 19th, uh, 2023. And uh, we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We're going to close out uh, with the music of Shirley Scott uh, from the album entitled Hip Soul. This is Abayomi Azikawe signing off and have a beautiful week.